Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Kedar Narayan from the Centre of Molecular Microscopy at the Frederick National Laboratory and the National Cancer Institute, and he discusses why he never took high school biology. In high school, I was pretty sure I wanted to be um, a designer, an architect. And so it was just math, physics, uh, uh, computers, uh, chemistry. And I decided biology was icky, didn't want to do it, just just never did high school biology. Why developing techniques is really, really demanding. But with technologies, what was impossible yesterday is normal today and is outdated tomorrow. And so there's a an inherent pressure on technology-heavy sciences or people who develop technologies. There's this inherent need to keep the foot on the gas to some extent. And how AI makes it harder to spot bad science. So we're already in this place where it is so dependent on trust that everyone else is, is doing a good job. I think with AI, it's going to be that whole thing on steroids. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Kedar from the NIH, uh, Frederick National Laboratory at the National Cancer Institute. Good grief, that's a lot to say, but essentially from the NIH. Kedar, how are you today? I'm doing well, Pete. Good to be with you. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Uh, I, I, a lot of your work now evolves around volume EM. Mm-hmm. How did you get into volume EM? Where we, let's start. What was your first microscope you ever used? Oh, the first microscope I've ever used. Um, well, I think it was one of those um, little dinky things uh, in high school. Uh, one of those nondescript things with, you know, really lousy focus knob one of those desktop things. And I looked at um, uh, the usual, I think, onion cells and something from the inside of his cheek. Um, but yeah, the, the way I came to microscopy was actually quite circuitous. It was uh, quite, a, uh, quite a long path. So um, I started off, okay, here, here's a, a little secret if you promise not to share, is um, I never did high school biology. So I-, no, I was convinced um, well, in, in high school, I was pretty sure I wanted to be um, a designer, an architect. And, and so it was just math, physics, uh, uh, computers, uh, chemistry. And I decided biology was icky, didn't want to do it, just just never did high school biology. So um, I then did, I had a very good chemistry teacher. So I did my first undergrad in chemistry with the side of math and physics. And I still remember uh, my, my project was on binding, you know, kinetics and thermodynamics. And I chose to study antibody binding. And then I was like, well, these antibody things are curious. And then that led to, well, these B cell things are even more curious. And then you get this realization that biology might not be that bad after all, except I didn't know anything about it. So I had to go back, uh, do another undergrad degree. Um, so I, I, I went to Cambridge, I did a natural sciences tripos, 
uh, in pathology this time with the side of biochemistry and molecular biology, and then got my interest in really, uh, uh, you know, with immunology. And so my PhD, uh, by that time, um, I decided I still need to study a little more because my foundations, I felt, were still a little shaky. So I then came to America uh, to do a PhD in immunology. And my final uh, year, there was a paper that we had in, uh, in, in review that looked at uh, binding of, uh, you know, uh, super antigens on MHC, major histocompatibility complex molecules on, on the cell surface. And the, and the reviewer said, well, uh, can you actually show this with immunogold that you're seeing clustering on the, uh, on the surface of these cells? Because we had shown it with FRET and what have you. Um, and my, my PhD advisor at that time uh, mentioned that she knew somebody at the NIH who did this funny kind of electron microscopy that looked at things in three dimensions. Uh, and so I came to the NIH, and I kid you not, I, I came for uh, a, a week and pretty much never went back. So finished my uh, graduation to, uh, in, in, uh, mostly in absentia, but, but I went back and forth a bit. And then it was only in my postdoc that I um, really got introduced to electron microscopy. And so this was at the NIH. And I, the lab that I went to, Sri uh, Ramachandran's lab at, at NIH, this was, it was primarily a cryo-EM lab, but there was a small component where they just started this technology of looking at cells, not just protein, protein complexes, but cells in 3D using this strange contraption uh, called a focused ion beam scanning electron microscopy. And so I said, well, I, I didn't really feel like I wanted to, uh, to pursue structural biology, even though that was when, you know, cryo -EM was going through its inflection, right? The, the start of the resolution revolution or whatever you call uh, the thing. Um, and FibSem spoke to me and that's how I got into looking at cells in three dimensions. <clears throat> how long ago was that? That was um, about 10 years ago or so. Um, and so, you know, at that time, this was still, you know, volume EM wasn't a thing. In fact, my Twitter handle is uh, make volume EM a thing. I mean, I think we take volume electron microscopy, this term, a little bit for granted now, but it really wasn't a thing until very recently. And so it, uh, it's been interesting as some of the um, technologies have sort of coalesced into this, this group that fits under this rubric that I think just sort of we all sort of got together and decided, well, this is volume electron microscopy. And that's a thing right now. And that's what I do. So you've gone from wanting to be an architect to now looking at the architecture of the cells. Isn't that crazy? I know it's, it's yeah, it's, it's weird. I, I was thinking about that uh, a while ago and I thought, yeah, that's a little cute, but, but that's exactly how it works. So little bits of chemistry for the sample prep and uh, obviously physics with, with the electron optics and, uh, uh, yeah, biology. Finally, I got around to learning a little bit of biology, and here we are. No, but yeah, but the architecture of the cell is all physics. If you think about it, the yeah. physical forces. It is biochemistry, biophysics. It is. Yeah. It is just a biological architecture, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's what goes where and uh, how do things get there, and how do they interact with one another. And and it's true that you can break this down and study it in many different ways. Um, it's true, but there's, to me, there's something just intrinsically fascinating about 
looking at what things go where and how they look. I mean, I've always been sort of interested in that kind of thing, right? And I think volume EM, this, this is really what, what we're doing in, in, in some respect. So you mentioned how you've moved from being the designer, architect, then starting to like biology, coming back from biology into immunology, moving yep. your immunology, which got you into the, the iron milling of the FibSem side of things. Yep. Why did you decide to pursue a career more in the technology than the question? Or, or am I wrong in that presumption? Right. But I, no, I see you're you no, you're not wrong at all. No, you're, you're absolutely right about that. Um, it's, I, think, <laughs> I think part of it is that um, I have this annoying habit of getting bored rather quickly. And it seemed very clear to me that the way science has sort of, uh, or certainly most of scientific research in, in academia at the very least, appears to be, well, here's my a disease model, or here's my protein complex of interest, and I'm going to study it for the next three decades. And I just couldn't see myself do it. So um, part of it was just uh, the interest in being able to push something. I could tell that uh, while cryo-EM, yes, it was, it was uh, very interesting at this point when I really started getting into this, this area, I felt that volume EM was the next thing. And there would be a lot of um, technological uh, work that needs to be done in order to get it to where clearly cry EM had gone. So part of it was that interest, you know, to be at that place when things are really nascent. And I would argue that volume EM is still, relatively speaking, in its nascent, right? Um, so there's that uh, interest in making things work. Uh, and also the opportunity to really uh, not just develop these technologies, but deploy them in a variety of challenging questions that could be really anything. So Thanks. that was sort of how I did it. But is, is that is that how you... No, 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 no. Look, I'm a technologist as well, so I, I see the side. But it was interesting you say, hey, you, know, you, you didn't want to look at one question and so on, but look at it for the next 30 years. And I guess from that perspective, they look forward to the new technology that helps them to progress their question forward. From your side, you're interested in the technology and I think you always deployment to lots of different samples as it develops. So I, I would say you've just chosen 30 years of being an electron microscopy. Yeah, right. You know, the funny thing about that, though, Pete, is that, you know, no disrespect at all to people, uh, the folks who do this kind of thing, right? They drill down on this one question for years and years and years. But in some ways, the job of a technologist is really demanding because you can, well, you can get, you know, great papers on a disease model, let's say malaria. Malaria tuberculosis, it ain't going nowhere, brother. You know, it's it's going to be around for a long time. But with technologies, what was impossible yesterday is normal today and is outdated tomorrow. And so there's a an inherent pressure on technology heavy sciences or people who develop technologies, there's this inherent need to keep the foot on the gas to some extent, to keep sort of moving forward, which I think is sometimes underappreciated, right? It's a little bit of this Alice in Wonderland kind of thing, right? With the, with the Red Queen, you gotta keep running twice as fast to get anywhere. Um, 
So I think that's that's something that is a little challenging. Um, I mean, it's fruitful and enjoyable, but it is it is something that that I think as technologists, I think you 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 know what I'm talking about, right? There's this, this thing of always wanting to. No, absolutely. I guess it's like a classic academic who's studying their one question that if their question, if they get to the end of the road, they have to completely move. So have you ever thought that electron microscopy may one day become surpassed by another type of technology that completely makes electron microscopy redundant? Um, Expansion microscopy isn't going to do that. that. That's solving different things. But, you know, another technology that comes to the fore could remove that. Have you ever thought about that and get slightly scared by the fact that suddenly all your expertise is suddenly oof, within yeah, five years yeah. just gone. Yes, uh, I, and this is something that is an inherent uh, danger with uh, technologists, right? Just ask the people who uh, develop, I don't know, DVDs or any number of technologies that have just completely been superseded. The I'm I'm less worried about light microscopy completely taking the place of electron microscopy simply because at the end of the day, even if the resolution of whatever fancy uh, approach you have just equals or even surpasses uh, electron microscopy, I, I doubt, but let's say it, it's a, it approaches it. At the end of the day, with light microscopy, you're you're looking you're looking for something and you see it, right? You you only see what you're looking for. Whereas with electron microscopy, you capture everything. You capture the ultrastructure of pretty much everything, all the membranes or uh, a significant chunk of, of, of protein complex, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's some utility in that, in the ability to see things as they are, the ultrastructure of everything. But I would not be surprised if at some point, some related approach starts really uh, encroaching. But is electron microscopy going to completely vanish? I'm not entirely sure. I, I I don't foresee a technology at the moment that would do that. It's the same challenge to to light microscopists. You know, I don't see a technology coming to completely supplant what they're doing on that side either. So, but well, I think I think the one thing though, Pete, is that I think we're in, even though we're not realizing this right now. I think that with I speak for volume electron microscopy. I think we're going to see a change in the kinds of questions that we're going to be asking. And I think we are already seeing a little bit of that, perhaps in connectomics and now a little bit in cell biology as well, is perhaps um, a, a tweaking back of the dial back to just discovery. I think back in the day, there was a lot of, you know, science was a lot about discovery, right? You didn't know anything where you, you, you took a stab at it with the best approach that you had. And it's like, okay, this is this journey of discovery that we're embarking on. And then in the recent past, I think there's been a lot of hypothesis-driven science, which is fair. There's nothing wrong with it. But I think with, with the newest groups of technologies that have been developed, certainly I can say for volume electron microscopy, now we have a chance of getting back to just discovering things again, simply because you couldn't access them previously. Uh, and I think there's going to be uh, another wave of, of uh, just discovery papers. But is the lack of completely blue sky discovery science really led by the funding side of it? And, and you know, we, as scientists, we have to sell 
our research to the public. The public are what paying the taxes to the government is the government that's funding the research. And even for politicians, they need to be able to say, yes, we're looking at this. We're going to solve this. So is it the funding model that, that detracts from the from that discovery science? And, and will that ever change it, with money becoming ever more difficult? You know, the funding right. stream. Right. I wonder um, if that will is is the funding situation dire in in the UK as it is here? I I, I would uh, this is where I I've got to be very careful. I would say not. I I would say even since the, the financial meltdown back in the the late noughties, right. you know, yes, in real terms the funding may have gone down, but compared to other areas that are having to cost money, mm -hmm. I think have done pretty well out of it. And I think I think over COVID science stepped up to the plate yeah in a big way it, it, and not just helping to solve and look at research into covid but even in the response of setting up the covid testing labs into the instrumentation the lab expertise all sorts was repurposed and it was in place because of the funding now look it's not perfect and right. i don't think you know anywhere is ever going to be our utopia for that right uh, but i but no no not i don't think it's dire at all but I think financial times with governments, the way that the globe is at the moment, there's financial pressures everywhere. Yeah. Some point, um, our purses. Yeah, I, I think. Uh, well, I I have a slightly less rosy picture of of how things are. To be completely honest, I um, I think that the um, funding systems uh, incentives are not at all and sick. I, I don't think things are where they should be. I mean, I think uh, the way one, there are many different ways to, to look at it, but uh, one sort of anecdotal piece of evidence is you see the people uh, you, getting into graduate school as uh, the economy goes up and down, and there's an inverse correlation. When the, when the economy is doing well, you know, you have fewer people applying to grad school. And when there's a recession, then you have a, a glut of applicants. And that in and of itself to me, I think is problematic because it tells me that a lot of people are getting into uh, PhD level uh, studies or, or courses uh, to essentially ride their way out of a bad economic time. There's no jobs available, so I'll get go, go to grad school. And I'm not entirely sure that that's a, a viable path. I don't want to be I don't want to be too precious about this or too much of a purist, but because you know people who are scientists, yes, we have to make money. But I think that really scientific pursuit is probably best when there's a little bit of daylight between um, sort of money requirements and the job at hand. Because otherwise, I think that's part of the reason is we've gotten to a bit of a death spiral with, well, I'm going to do uh, what it takes to get my next round of funding. I think this is a pretty common refrain, right? I'm sure you've heard this. Yeah. And I think partly that's because there's a set amount of money. There's a huge amount of people coming through the pipeline. Um, and, well, we've got to make things work. We've got to pay people. And therefore, this is what I'm going to study, not because it interests me or because it's important, but I know that this will give me my greatest chance of, of keeping my lab afloat. So it's, it's, not, it's not cynical or selfish or anything, but it's what you have to do. Yeah. No, absolutely. You, you have to, otherwise your lab sinks. 
Yeah, labs. And I and I suspect Pete, that that um, small institutions are going to bear the brunt of this. They probably are already, but I think the situation is probably going to get worse before hopefully uh, it gets better. Uh, and this is something that that worries me. I mean, in, you know, I'm, I'm deeply involved in the volumium community, uh, and folks who know me sort of hear several refrains that 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 I keep bringing up. And one of them is this increasing gap between what I call the one percenter labs and the rest. Right? There are a few of us who are lucky, who have stable and well-funded labs, and we're the one percenters. And then there are the rest. And so here here we are talking about these fancy microscopes and all of these advanced concepts and how best to uh, you know, incorporate AI and how metadata standards should be, all of these things that we love and we know that are important. And meanwhile, you have people who are working with one volume EM data set that they got from a demo lab for a year. Um, and it, it really came, this, this gap came home to me when I was giving a talk some time ago and I was talking about, you know, some of our deep learning work. And I realized that um, folks had absolutely um, no access to what we had assumed was basic computational requirements to be able to do something, or the kinds of access to a reasonable sort of corpus of data to be able to, for example, train a deep learning model and so on. So I think that gap is, again, something which has been exacerbated by our current funding models. And I don't know how we'll get out of it, but somebody had better pay attention to it. Yeah, and maybe more community-driven access gives people to sharing that access to the to the 1% and the 1% opening, opening themselves out, uh, central nodes as core facilities and so forth uh, will help that. And think thinking of that side of it, uh, I must apologize. I think I've uh, made you scared for your job because electron microscopy disappear. Uh, scared <laughs> for your job because the funding's going to disappear. I thought, ah, you're going to go away terribly sad after this. <laughs> I'm going to pull it around. It you is know. never too early to have a drink in despair. <laughs> the, the volume EM community, you sent me some pictures, and uh, this is one of those pictures uh, with a few familiar faces, certainly for me. Yes. So tell me the importance of the Volume EM community and what they're doing at the moment. Well, the, the Volume EM community is, is a small community, but growing, and it's a wonderful place to be, frankly. Uh, so you're seeing over here, at this was at uh, Microscopy and Microanalysis, which is sort of the flagship yep. microscopy um, uh, conference here in the States. Uh, and you see uh, Alice Liang, she's at NYU. Uh, there's Paul Bergari, who obviously you know. Um, there's Kirk Zimmick, who I believe you spoke to recently. Oh, I know Kirk. I meet Kirk every Friday. Do you really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So? I, I don't know ever, I, actually, I don't know if I've ever met him in person. It's really strange. Uh, he and Jessica Back, I meet once a week, uh, writing a paper together. In oh, is that right? And I met Jessica Back the other week. And he was like, oh, my goodness, you're taller than I Right. That's the other thing with Zoom meetings, though, isn't it? I mean, like, I have no idea. You could be seven feet tall. Not just under. Just under. That's right. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. I'm, 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 and I'm six foot seven feet. That, that's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, these, you know, there's, there's Paul Licata there. There's uh, uh, Alex Ellie from, from Zeiss, Phil Bastian's from Zeiss as well. Um, so I think, um, yeah, the community is in a good spot right now. 
um, we really, there are a few of us who have been deeply involved in this thing, really sort of neck deep and trying to get this thing together because it is a very disparate group of technologies, unlike, for example, cryo-EM, right? Uh, Volume-EM is really a collection of approaches and not every lab, in fact, most labs don't have more than one or two of these uh, techniques at hand, you know, either array tomography and FibSAM or serial block phase and XRM or what have you, except for Lucy, who I believe has everything. Uh, but, um, but, 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 you know, so it, it's important to have the, there she is. Yeah, this is when I, I just happened to drop in with very little announcement uh, when I uh, went to, to go visit my parents for a little bit. Um, I just went uh, uh, across town and, and uh, met Lucy at Crick and, and had a really, really nice time. So Yeah, yeah Lucy's ace. Actually, she's, she's up in a couple of weekends time, which will be... Is that right? Yeah, nice. I mean, uh, she, she's absolutely great. And I think... I think uh, the, the community has really come together. I think we have these working groups, you know, whether it's for data, for sample prep and so on. And um, fortunately, fingers crossed, up until now at least, there hasn't been a jerk. Because you, you know, you only need one of them to really, to really mess things up. And fortunately, uh, perhaps because we've been a little bit in, in the shadow of the cryo-EM guys, I don't know, uh, but it, it has been so pleasurable and so fun. And I'm really looking forward to the first Gordon Research Conference, the first GRC uh, in the summer of 2023, I think is, is when all of us or most of us uh, will get a chance to get together and, and just do something like this, except in real life. Uh, it, is a, it is a very buoyant community. and. Actually, that the previous slide you mentioned Zeiss, and they were, in, in my opinion, they were actually very instrumental in bringing that community together at a very, very early stage. Yeah. Uh, through the meeting that was in Ghent, in Ghent, yes, EMBL, so with Chris Garriott, and then to EMBL, and back to Ghent, right. And it was, it wasn't about Zeiss; it was about bringing the community together and seeing how they could progress forward. And I think that was, that was quite smart. That that was. I mean, this is something I've. I've you know, I've, I've been um, fond of saying is, is it, Zeiss is, is, is a science company that happens to do business. And, and that's, that's uh, significantly different from folks who are in the business and happen to do science. Uh, it's a philosophical difference and it, and it actually does um, make a difference and it manifests itself in, in exactly something like this, right? Um, they came in and have been very uh, supportive, although they could be more supportive uh, to our lab. Wink, wink. Um, but but yes, it's been it's been a pleasure working with with industry partners, not just ICE, but uh, but also the other uh, the other uh, other vendors as well, uh, because it really does take everybody to sort of come together and, and make sure that the science and the technology, all of that, is in sync to the extent possible. Oh, and it needs competition because <clears throat> competition speeds up development and research, which is and, and keeps the prices competitive as well, which is good. And you mentioned you were back in the UK to your parents. So I presume your parents are London based, not American based. They, they actually uh, live in Scotland. So um, I, I, I went to London for my niece's graduation. But but yeah, my mum and dad live in, in Scotland. So if, if you ever go to uh, this little uh, 
down just uh, west of Glasgow, you see two very jolly South Indian people. It's probably my mom and dad. Um, so it's they they uh, bless their hearts. They're in they're in very good shape. They spend their summers in uh, Scotland, but then the winters back uh, in South India, where it's it's still you know they get the best of both worlds. Yep. So you see what you might not know this, but Richard Henderson. So not thinking cryo and fibsem from from your side, but cryo and from structural side. Yeah. A lot of his childhood was up in the Scottish Highlands in Coming Down. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's quite neat. So you went to university in Cambridge. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You sent some pictures, and this is. Are you rowing? This is me. I'm uh, I'm in bow right there to the to the to your right. Uh, with absolutely horrendous form, um, so the um, I I took up rowing. I I went to Christ College, and um, uh, that's where I really started rowing. And then when I came over stateside, I uh, continued because there's an alumni association, and so we have an annual regatta. You know, sort of just like the uh, the race on on the Thames. We have uh, down at uh, on the Potomac in Washington D.C between uh, Cambridge alumni and uh, Oxford uh, alumni. So, uh, and we get plastered every year, every year, because they've got such, Oxford's got such a good team, you know, ex-Olympians. And then here we are, I mean, people like me, if, if, you, if someone like me makes it to the boat, you can tell it's not going to be a particularly strong boat. Um, but yeah, so um, I, I had been rowing, unfortunately, they got to the point where you're, brain thinks you can still roll really well and your lower back decides to give out on you. So uh, unfortunately, more recently, it's it's been mostly uh, yoga and hiking and that kind of thing. And uh, I'm hoping to get back in the boat at some point in time, but we're not there yet. So you say hiking. Uh, you also sent some pictures around hiking. So as hobbies to relax, I presume hiking is one of your things. I think this was uh, well, you'll know where this picture's from better than I know this picture. This, this, is, what, what uh, this is those listening. What are we looking at? So this is uh, this is Largs. Uh, this is a small uh, town uh, in in Scotland in the, uh, on the on the west coast, and it's just uh, a really you know your typical sort of Scottish beach. It's, it's glorious, and I just uh, I sent this photo to you because I just I love the uh, the lighting was just perfect, and I was just thinking. That was a photo that could have been taken years and years and years ago, uh, and it you know it, it just captures the whole thing, just just beautifully. Um, and so yeah, this this was on one of my trips just to go visit my mom and dad, and uh, you know, is this also southern no, India? Did your mom and dad go back to India, southern India? This, this was when they were back in India. That's right. So this is this actually is in South India. So there are hills in South India too. And uh, this is one of the tea estates uh, in, in South India. And so uh, this was when I visited them and, and you know, just uh, a whole bunch of walking around. Uh, and, and this is um, uh, in, in, a, in a place called Munar uh, in Kerala, actually. It's, it's a beautiful place. Uh, and so every time, so my parents travel quite a bit. And so we, that's, that's our excuse to go and, and meet them uh, which we have in in many many different places. What I didn't show you, I probably should have, is uh, photographs from uh, New Zealand or Australia, from Middle East, where, um, well, certainly not in the, in the Middle East, you've got mostly sand dunes, but but uh, from New Zealand, you've got just these beautiful beautiful hills and mountains and uh, fjords, 
that 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 also looks spectacular, but I couldn't find them. Well, I, I, I thought you were going to say that you should have sent me pictures other than Scotland and southern India to show that you walk somewhere other than where your parents are. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so you did send me this one, but this is in West Virginia. So this guy, well, this is an American now. So yep. I, I felt I've got to put in, you know, one one for for America. Um, I think I, I don't know to what extent West Virginia has a, a reputation across uh, the Atlantic. I'm not so sure. But I, I think over here there, there's sometimes, you know, Appalachia has a little bit of a, a, a kind of uh, I wouldn't call it stigma, but but there are certain um, easy stereotypes to to assign to that that part of the country. But it's actually beautiful, uh, really really beautiful. And so when we get a chance, which we did during uh, the pandemic a little bit, you know, one of the few things you could do is is go outdoors. Uh, and so it's just nice to be out uh, and about. But again, that's one of those things that. I should do more of, and I don't. But they haven't. So, so but the times I do, I will happily share those images. So you mentioned COVID. Uh, I, and so, sorry, I don't want to linger too much on COVID, but you sent this picture, which is which which is titled beautifully EM Family COVID. That's right. What does so, that mean? <laughs> well, none of us, um, um, I wouldn't say none of us got COVID, but nobody had COVID at that time. Uh, and you can tell there's there's one or two people that are flirting a little bit with danger there because we did have uh, uh, not an entire lockdown, but uh, activity went down significantly at the national lab. Um, and we sort of limped back to normalcy now. But for a couple of years, it was it was um, you know masks and distancing and all of that. Uh, and and this I, I should clarify something important that this isn't the size of our entire group. This is the entire EM family. So within the National Lab and, and, and National Cancer Institute here at Frederick, there's a, a cryo-EM group, uh, there's a traditional electron microscopy lab, uh, and then there's us, the, the volume EM lab. So, so our group is about five people or say the half dozen uh, strong. And so everybody got together. Uh, this is specifically for when Kunio uh, Nagashima, who is the uh, elder gentleman right in, in the middle holding a laptop, this was when he retired. And, and uh, after, I believe it was 47 years of service uh, here at, at the NTI, even before the national lab started, you know, we are the baby of all the national labs uh, most national labs in, in America are funded by the Department of Defense or Energy. We're funded by the National Cancer Institute, and we're specifically the only national lab that's specifically geared towards biomedical research. And, and Cuneo was just, is way older than the, the national lab. Uh, and, and after half a century of works, just a remarkable career in electron microscopy, um, he retired a couple of years ago. You so see yourself working for 47 years? I believe so. I think 47 is the right number, yeah. It's, um, and he is uh, just a remarkable person. Um, one of those guys that has, luckily for us, really, um, has this memory, uh, which is so important in for old school microscopy, certainly, right? Where you ask, you know, and if you've done electron microscopy, you often ask, well, I don't know what this is. Have you seen this before? Again, this is one of those differences between light and electron microscopy or fluorescence and electron microscopy, because there is a lot of 
huh, what's that uh, that you still get in uh, electron microscopy? And, and our go-to person used to be Cuneo. And more often than not, most often, he had already seen something and he was ready to uh, sort of help you out. So truly a, a remarkable and an extremely patient person. So uh, yeah, when, when you retire, will you ever want to look down the electron microscope again? Or when you retire, do you retire and move on? What do you think will happen? You know, I have no idea about that. It, it's, um, it's far into the future, but I suspect that in 20 years time, um, our processes and structures around this kind of work will be so dramatically different that I'm not sure that that question will be valid anymore. First of all, I'm not entirely sure that there will be, um, you know how there's this, um, uh, there's this pithy sort of uh, thing, uh, term, you know, seeing is believing. I'm not sure we're going to have to see to believe anymore. I think we are definitely going to move away from having to visually confirm an observation. I think we're getting to the point, certainly with volume electron microscopy, where the field is certainly moving towards greater th throughput, vaster amounts of data. I'm not so sure that the insights that we'll get will be in uh, be, will be captured in a two-dimensional image or even a three-dimensional reconstruction. I think our insights are going to be in some nth dimension, and I'm not so sure that our current approaches of traditional observation, hypothesis, conclusions are going to be valid. So I, I was going to ask you, well, I'm going to follow on this track for a minute. <clears throat> what is going to have to be the biggest innovation to make that happen? Oh, we're in the middle of it right now. I think the genie is out of the bottle as far as artificial intelligence is concerned. And I think it's going to vastly change things. I'm not going to say improve things, but I will say it, it, it will change things. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm not so sure that um, science will or should be constrained by what can be printed on a postage stamp sized uh, figure in a journal. I mean, I think that's just, we've gone, we've already are going past it and very soon we'll be well past it. The inordinate amount of time that is spent right now to condense these complex uh, multi-dimensional observations into something that can be projected on a two-dimensional plane and can be fit into a figure panel, it's already infuriating. And I suspect in a decade from now, it will be just so archaic uh, that we'll have to come up with other ways of doing this. But I, I, I'll, I'll go back, seeing as believing. Uh, I think when the AI is coming out with the solution, the answer, the, 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 I think that's a hypothesis still. And I think we'll still have to go back and then now we'll be using the microscopy to prove the AI is correct in its hypothesis and to check it, check it out. So I think it may go. Uh, uh, yes, that is, you, you are right about that. Yes, you, you are right about that. But I, uh, 
I think the use of artificial intelligence or deep learning models to analyze that data that comes out of microscope, I think will, um, will, will create insights that are difficult to then, in fact, they may be even difficult to, for a human to accurately um, and precisely ascertain or confirm. And that's a little worrisome to me, Pete. I, I don't know what your thoughts are about this, but I, I really do worry that uh, with the with the advent of AI, even before this, right, with multi-expertise uh, or, or, or multidisciplinary science, it already was difficult to tell good science from bad science. It already is very difficult because no one reviewer is, or even many of the authors, to be completely honest, on any of these multidisciplinary papers uh, can really tell what's good science and what, what's crap, right? We just don't have uh, the expertise of the bandwidth to do it. So we're already in this place where it is so dependent on trust that everyone else is, is doing a good job. I think with AI, it's going to be that whole thing on steroids because I just don't think it's going to be uh, humanly possible to accurately confirm one way or the other what it's going to be very difficult. I, I, I'm not going to say it's going to be impossible, but it's going to be increasingly difficult. I'm curious as to what you think about this. Yeah, no, so I, I don't disagree. I mean, look at AlphaFold. Yeah, as a biochemist, as a crystal, yeah, if you're going to go to crystal structures, AlphaFold's quite disruptive potentially, but now they're having to confirm that the AlphaFold is correct, but it accelerates and they can put more hypotheses to it quickly. I think overall, AI will be good. It will get there eventually, but we still have to confirm it. And the best thing about biology is it is so heterogeneous. Right. That actually to model just one disease from one patient to the next, it's utterly different. Okay. And so actually that, that, that whole mechanistic biology from one person to another, the biases, the percentages, the balances, the protein-protein interactions, the cofactors are such subtle, subtle difference between patient to patient. I would like to think that AI will help us significantly because that will help us with the treatments, the drug designs and everything else. But I think the complexity is still, and the other side, I think the cost of the instruments to back up the throughput to prove it is yeah. going to be prohibitive, at least for the next 10 years. Yeah. You, you talk about the, the top 1%, probably only the top 0.1% have the very latest high throughput, you know, multi-beam, SEMs for your array tomography type approaches. So the throughput's really slow to back it up. And without it being backed, the, pub, the, 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 the biomed companies won't pay that much yeah. attention to it. So I think that's a worrying thing, though, because I, I, I worry that the given the incentive structures that we have in place, not just in academia, but in society in general, the push to have a profitable um, model that will answer question X is uh, so strong that I worry that we'll get a poor and incomplete models that will push out predictions or data that will be ever more difficult to truly say whether you know this is valid or not until of course it crashes and burns and then, uh, well, we're gonna have to do something about it, yeah. But okay, to challenge back, 
that happens even with good human science-led research. Uh, and Ron Germain, oh, you know Ron Germain, yeah, we talked about that earlier, you know, with suppressor T-cells. Uh, right. And right. how things change, you know, at the time, it is the right science, it is the correct science, but then you learn more technology, as we mentioned, drives that question forward and you start to learn more about these. And you can carry on to do, you know, so almost correct yourself as time goes by. So You're even human research right. is deeply, it's flawed, but it's the best we've got at the moment. You're, you're right, Pete. But I fear that the speed at which things are moving makes it more and more difficult for that course correction and reversal, right? So it's, it's uh, that that's that's the concern that that you have these um, uh, these advances that are sort of out there somewhere, and then given that those uh, uh, a simple example would be uh, to look at some of these large learning models, given how they've been trained and you know, doing the best they can and whatnot, I think we're, it's safe to say that 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 results are mixed, uh, and I'm not so sure what the corrective. Well, there is no real correction to it, right? There, there's no real correction to whatever you get from, say, Chad GPT in answer to a question. Um, it, it just gives you what it thinks is right. And it's very difficult to really tell um, whether my right is different from its right. Uh, and if that's going to be in turn different from someone else's concept of what's right. So I think we're we're all getting into difficult territory here yeah. i guess that's where the publications and, and publications will change how we publish will change but i think that's where peer review and good diligence will so still be, I, you know i want to ask you this question um this is something again that that worries me it's bad enough it, it's difficult enough right now to catch fraud um with with you know deep fakes and so on i think it's going to be virtually impossible i mean we already have a whole bunch of uh, I think someone famously, I, I don't know if there's scientific data to back this up, I think there might be that 80% of science is just crap, right? And just 1% of uh, clinical studies were reproducible. I, I'm not entirely sure of the numbers, but it's it's shockingly low. And I'm just wondering whether with, with unscrupulous players, you could do anything. And you're right, maybe, maybe the system will eventually catch up to it, but it'll become more and more difficult to do so. It, it, it's a good point. I I don't know how well familiar you are with Elizabeth Bick's work, uh, picking out fraudulent data and, and makes a, a career out of finding fraudulent data because it's very important. But a lot of that fraudulent data is very, okay, I was going to say very badly done. Uh, but actually then she posts on her Twitter site pictures uh, and you look at them thinking, oh, I'm struggling to find a difference here. And she's just got an eye for it. Yeah. Actually, AI can probably tease those out, so it can probably help on that side. But you're right with deep fake. The data could be completely. I, 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 it could you yourself? You you know, if you look at some of <laughs> that's right images. So your 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 metadata. Yeah, you can start to make artwork. Yeah, that artwork can very quickly become become. Original right. looking, yeah, it yeah. being true, honest data to start so with. I'm really hoping that with you know this is the metadata and 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 to me as something that I do spend some time thinking about. Um, 
And the White House recently released, you know, uh, they called it an AI Bill of Rights, which is a very good stab, first stab at, at trying to get some sort of a structure around, well, how are we going to deal with this tsunami, right? Um, and I don't think we have enough of that yet in, in the scientific uh, community in a cogent manner. I think we've all sort of, we're all sort of making our own rules to the best we can, um, the way we can, but I think um, I, it, it's, it, it's something that's gonna be interesting because I don't think there are clear directives of what is kosher and what's not when it comes to using artificial intelligence and data. But, but this particular one, uh, I just, just a little digression on the art. So yeah. I, I, um, I, I did st study art um, uh, formally for a year, but I like this kind of thing. Um, it's just because I, I felt like it really showed that without metadata, what's really uh, blocky and clunky and gray really once you have once bathed in a really uh, descriptive set of uh, information which is what your metadata is really brings out all there is in the data so that was what i was trying to to, to sort of show in that that piece of art yeah although i, I will say i only did the the, the schematic the the wonderful uh, work was done by a professional. So I just did the initial sketches and so on, uh, but, but this was done with uh, an artist collaborator. So if we're looking art-wise, you also have this, which was uh, for nature methods? Yes. Um, and so this is this is a commentary on volume EM that um, a few of us had written that came out recently. Uh, and this is another one of those things where uh, the volume EM data, which is the grayscale stack that you see in the back, what you're looking at is uh, the first moment of, of um, sort of fertilization. And this is where, you know, in a C. elegans embryo, where you have uh, the parental uh, genomes mixing for the first time. You know, you, you, you have your uh, paternal uh, pre-nucleus and uh, pro-nucleus and your maternal, and they have to come together and at some point the nuclear envelopes have to sort of melt, right, in some way for the genomes to actually mix. And that's what we captured, that first moment where the paternal and the maternal DNA sort of just touch each other before you get complete genomic mixing. And then, of course, you have your uh, deployed, first deployed cell. Now, I'm, I'm going to move things on because we're fast going. Time is running fast. So I'm going to ask some quick fire questions. Sure. Early bird or night owl? Increasingly early bird. PC or Mac? Mac. McDonald's or Burger King? Neither. US or UK? Oh. Um, UK. Oh, good choice. But, but I, I, I love the US. Please don't cut my funding. It's okay. Uh, I, so no, I'm, just, I'm just making sure you lost your US passport. And uh, <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> UK or India? Um, uh, UK. Oh, well, I think all the, I'm, I'm, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say gonna get the UK passport. You're going to be homeless soon. Yeah, I'm going to be homeless. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I think was India um, and New Zealand on the fjords. It was going <laughs> right. I, I think, I think the, the thing is every time the, the dial changes a little bit, something happens, you know, it's either an election here in the States or a certain uh, set of decisions in the UK, or, or it's usually, I think it's more politically driven than it probably should be, but 
this is the this is the world we live in, right? So I think at different times during the year, my answers might change a little bit. Well, again, the heterogeneity of life and yeah. politics is short term, all short term, so it's always flitting to and fro. So next one, coffee or tea? Coffee. No, I guess that short <laughs> espresso or long americano. Um. I I cheat. So um, espresso. So they call it an americano here. So uh, so an espresso shot, but a little with a little bit of hot water, so that you can actually savor it for a little longer. Okay. Uh, with a little bit of oat milk on occasion. Yeah. Beer or wine? Beer. Chocolate or cheese? Cheese. Okay. What is your favorite good cheese? But like a good cheese, not not the you know gooey stuff that they slap over a burger or something. Yeah. What is your favorite food? If you were to be taken out to a conference and you, and you weren't to be given a choice, they just put it down. What would be your food heaven? Favorite food? Oof. Um. Well, I do love um, the Mediterranean palate. I I really I really like it. Although um i'm as i'm rediscovering more of my uh you know the traditional south indian food i'm really trying to cook more of that at home um so when i'm feeling you know sick or or i'm not feeling that great there is absolutely nothing like um yogurt and rice that's pretty gentle okay what is your worst food what is one food that you, if you served up you'd be thinking oh, i really don't want to eat that no, there's really nothing that I, oh, well, maybe uh, octopus. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, octopus or eel. And what about, uh, what's your favourite film? Pulp Fiction. Oh, good choice. What's your favourite Christmas film? Uh, I, well, Die Hard. It has to be. <clears throat> That'll be up there for me as well. <laughs> Star Trek or Star Wars? Wars. Really? Yeah. I'm not a. I'm not much of a trekkie. I. I got to be honest. But I will say with a huge caveat. Uh, when I say Star Wars, I'm specifically assuming that one through three never existed. They just didn't happen. So we're just gonna leave that first trilogy out. Okay. And TV or book? A book. And um, what are you uh, reading? Graphic novels specifically, but... Um, I, say novels, I, did you say? Graphic novels. So, graphic. yeah, um, I, I, I read everything. Um, with TV, um, I, I do like movies. I, I, you know, just for Memorial Day, we just did a uh, war movie marathon just this past week. Um, but I've no patience for some of these Netflix things that just go on Netflix or whatever you have, uh, Hulu or whatever, that just go on and on and on season after season. Remember how 40 Towers, one season, comedic gold, boom, we're done. And now you just go on for eight seasons and I just have no patience for that. Just, no. Give me a good graphic novel or a book. I'm happy. Or a one hour, two hour movie. Done. That's fair enough. And what's your favorite color? An odd bluish gray. Okay. And favorite conference? Favorite conference? Oh, it's going to be the next GRC for Volume EM, the first Volume EM GRC. That was typical. Oh, my goodness. It looks like I'm waving. Uh, 
So you sent me some more pictures of you chilling out. So again, on the so not just rowing, you sail and you. Uh, I love the water. Uh, absolutely love the water. So whenever we get the chance, um, whether it's kayaking or, or sailing, um, I just love the water. So it's a great way to just uh, decompress a little bit. Okay, and pottery. <laughs> <laughs> so I do I do like working with my hands. Uh, and so uh, I I started pottery uh, a little bit ago. This is just a collection. I just thought it was a nice photograph of some of my uh, somewhat clumsily made pots. You can tell by the thickness of the rims that uh, these are some of my beginner pots. I'm still not very good at all, uh, but perhaps just a wee bit better than what you see behind you. Are you doing pottery at home or are you going somewhere to do your No, pottery? there's a studio close by. So you haven't got your own kiln? Nope, not there yet. Not there not, yet. I don't think not great. yet. Yeah. Not not there yet. So I I really want to uh, in the I'll 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 get this done in the next few years. So I've I've done pottery and woodworking. So clay and wood. Uh, I do want there's a smithy close by. So that'll be iron, glass blowing. So that'll be glass, and then perhaps sculpting stone. I really want to do all of these five things. Just have a good time working with my hands. So we've got. Pottery, sailing, kayaking, rowing. Uh, chess is another hobby of yours. <laughs> so actually, this is weird. I I almost turned pro um, when I was uh, I, I was a very good chess player. Um, and, and then you realised a made... computer can beat you. <laughs> so this was fortunately this was <laughs> before Deep Blue. This is fortunately before Deep Blue and all of that. Our just around when Deep Blue was was around, but uh, well before. Stockfish and 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 uh, Alpha, um, all of those new uh, approaches. Uh, I used to play quite well when I was a kid, and I was competitively did quite well. And finally, I made a call in high school that I couldn't make a living uh, if I pursued chess. And and um, yeah, that's how things happen. So I and th but but that was woodworking. Because uh, I, I made the um, I made the chess board. So that was my uh, that was uh, a board that that. Actually came out reasonably well. Yeah, I, I made that board. Dead, and not, not the pieces though. Here's an impressive chessboard. Oh, thank you. Well, if you look really close by, really close, you'll see some of the lines are a little wonky. Still impressive. And uh, I, I, this picture is the wrong orientation, but Mejong as well. And this is Mahjong. Yeah, this is this is uh, entirely. So this is how people make fun of me because I I uh, somehow that. Uh, the competitiveness from chess translates to mahjong, except mahjong has, you know, there's there's a slice of luck, depends on what dials you get. So it's an extraordinarily frustrating game for me. I'm terrible at it. And I keep promising myself that I'll play because I enjoy it, but I just suck at it so bad. But you're persevering, which is impressive. No, <laughs> no, so you wanted to be uh, a chess player, an architect, designer so when you were young these are what you're in this is what you wanted to do yes we know what you want to do now because you're very passionate about the volume em community if you could do any job for a day a week to get a feel for a different job what what job would you like to do or try out um farming sorry farming farming what yeah. sort of farming um Really, uh, well, it's two parts. On on the one hand, I 
really like just just working you know on, on uh, really reading more than anything else because I don't even want to do something that comes with it the pressure of expectations oh I hope this these tomatoes grow well or I hope those peppers look great none of that stuff just put me on a patch of uh, earth to just clear it up and I think I will be very happy um, uh, but on the other hand I do think that agriculture, because of climate change in the coming decades, uh, is one of those things that we're going to have to seriously rethink. And I think that that's going to be a very exciting place, actually. I, I just love to think that farming, as long as I'm weeding, you do know that they use just weed killers these days. I know. You just I want know. a wide and just oh, chemically. <laughs> Why don't you napalm the entire fields and then have it float in our bloodstreams? Um, no. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be, I think there will be a, a resurgence of new agricultural technologies soon, or at least I hope so. I think one way or the other, I believe it's going to have to happen. We are really, really close to the hour, and I have loads of questions I haven't asked you. So I'm going to get another quick fire question. Sure. Pipsem or array tomography? Pipsem now, array tomography in the future. Oh, that's a cop out. That little cop out. <laughs> Why array tomography in the future? Uh, because I think that there will be uh, AI-based approaches that will be able to fill in the resolution limitations of array tomography, and you will then get the advantages of the large volumes that array tomography will do, which FibSem is inherently limited. Today. Was that? Today. It's inherently Today. 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 Uh, right. Today. Who knows? Uh, you're right. With 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 plasma approaches, et cetera, et cetera, it, that uh, that answer is going to be completely outdated. Very sure. I'm, I'm I'm very sure about that. Yeah. And who have been your inspirations? Quick call out to those who have inspired you throughout your career. I'm very careful about that because I, I'm, I I'm careful about put, putting people on pedestals because uh, we're all fallible, and I think. Some of us sometimes do some things that are special. But I think as society, we are a little too keen on calling those people special, just in general. Whereas they really are they? So uh, there, there are certain people at certain times who have inspired me, uh, but, but that's about it. No, no, no uh, shining heroes. Uh, I, I, if your mom listens to this, She's going to say, Kedar, I want to speak to you. No, I think I think I think I've 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 gotten this healthy skepticism of, of people around me from my parents, actually. They're just very even keeled. And I think they'll be happy to know that that I don't look up to them any more than they would want me to. So now you just said they're not the <laughs> <laughs> you just I, have, I have insulted I have insulted my family my colleagues all my mentors everybody you know I'm very thankful for all actually all jokes aside though I, I really have had um many 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 people I, and you know this I mean it, it, it sure it takes hard work and perseverance but there's a massive chunk of luck not just in terms of circumstances but also in terms of the people you meet um and it it would be uh, unfair to single out one or two people simply because of the richness of the uh, of, of of the richness of of the um, 
kinds of relationships that you have with everybody, Com some people who may be completely unknowns, right? Or, or, or who from the outside may have very, very modest uh, achievements, quote unquote, but they're equally, equally uh, special in their own little way. On that note, without asking some of the questions I wanted to ask, we are up to the hour and I have to say thank you. So, Kayla, thank you very much for today. Thank you everyone who's watched, listened, uh, please don't forget to subscribe to the channels. You've heard about Elizabeth Bick. We talked briefly about Ron Germain. We talked about the Volume EM and there's, there's a podcast about Volume EM community. So please do tune and listen to that and uh, get yourself to the Gordon Conference. Kader. That's right. Join the Volume EM community. Thank you very much, Kader. Thank you, Pete. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.